We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. Hey there. If you're listening to this, it means you haven't made it over to my new podcast feed yet. Basically, if you want to continue to keep getting run the numbers on Spotify or iTunes, you need to follow the link in the description. Just expand the description and click the link with the PSA next to it. You can also just search for Run the Numbers and look for our teal logo, or as my wife likes to call it, Seafoam Green, which I really can't believe I just said out loud. When you get there, click follow. Please do, because as my financial advisor recently told me, I really need this. Ten years ago, observability, there was no such thing as observability. It was SIM, logging, APM, infrastructure management, tracing. There are five, six discrete categories. And then all these companies... And then all of these things were their individual swim lanes. And we're going to build these amazing companies in individual swim lanes. Ten years later, it's called one category, observability. So what was the TAM, right? We had all these individual TAMs, but this TAM has been like co-mingled and it's coalesced in a very different thing. And the competitive set is very different, radically different. So in general, what I say is companies come in and tell me, I got this massive TAM. I immediately zone out. And then I say, let's deconstruct this. What are you really saying? And then once you deconstruct the truth, then you realize that's not the real tale. Is this thing on? Yesterday's price is not today's price. Sage advice, Fatjo. Sage advice. Welcome to Run the Numbers, where I interview world-class CFOs, operators, and the investors who fund them on how to get the most out of your company's performance. This podcast is a playbook of sorts for ambitious people in the world of finance, strategy, and ops. Today, my guest is Tony Kim of BlackRock, one of the most prominent tech investors in the world. Tony has been running BlackRock's global technology funds since 2013, managing $20 billion in assets under management. Woo! Tony has the green light to invest anywhere in tech, from mid-cap to large-cap to international to private. He has a front-row ticket to the game. The top bankers in America bring the best tech companies through his office, so he has perhaps the best read on what good looks like in any macro cycle. Tony and I break down the components of durable revenue, touch on the importance of having a strategic narrative at your company, and do some math on how many IPOs the markets can possibly digest in a year. Tony has a contrarian take on TAM, net dollar retention, and ARR, so if you've ever touched a pitch deck, I wouldn't want to miss this. By the way, are you shocked I got this guy on the pod? Yeah, me too. So sit back and enjoy this jam session with a titan of the tech world. But first, a few quick words from our sponsors. Tony, honored to have you on the pod today. Thanks for joining me. Great to see you. Thanks for having me. So, Tony, I'm going to throw a term at you, and I'm hoping you can provide some context. So durable revenue is one of those phrases that's thrown around a lot by CFOs on public earnings calls. How do you even define durable revenue from your perspective as an investor? Are you able to describe it for us and maybe deconstruct the components? Yeah, let's just deconstruct it. What is the definition of durable, right? It's something that is withstanding wear, pressure, damage, decay, over time. It exists for a long time, doesn't deteriorate, permanence, stability. So I would say all you extract all of that, there is one underlying intonation here. It's duration. 
But with software companies, there's a contractual stickiness to it. So everything is subscription. Like there, there is no, you know, oh yeah, we're software, therefore we're great. You cannot contractually engineer durability. Yes, you can contractually do it for two years, three years, one year, whatever. But there's something more to it than just this duration or contractual duration. So just because you're a software company, it doesn't mean anything about durability to me. Yeah, you can have some limited duration because you have, but if your product doesn't have these other attributes of stickiness, of gravity, of permanence, then you're not what I would call truly durable. And then there's a third element. All software companies are, oh, we're great. We're SaaS. Again, that's not really the point. The point is it's duration, stickiness, and growth. So just because you're durable doesn't mean anything. You notice that because we're subscription companies, we're somehow impervious to these in business cycles. And I'm like, you have these cyclical companies in tech, quote, cyclicals, right? Semiconductors, right? And, oh, well, when the semi-cycle goes down, these companies collapse, growth rates collapse. Okay, yeah, that happens. Same thing happened in software. Now, the thing is, what happened in software is you had companies growing 50% in 2021, Mm -hmm. and now they grow 10. It's still durable, but the stocks are down as much, if not more, than those cyclical companies. So you can't hide behind this concept of durability. Is durability in the context of these factors of how permanent are you as a solution? What is the growth rate, right, of this thing? Because you have contractually created some notion of duration. And so there, there is a combination of all these things that factor in. Because like every software company on earth, therefore, is durable. Wrong. That's not true. Tony, when a company pitches you, what are the top two or three criteria then that you look for to ensure it has durable revenue potential. Can you tell by maybe it's net dollar retention rate? Is that one of the telltale no, signs? I was deceived. We were all deceived. Yeah. The NR concept is all great when things are going great, which was like t- 2019 to 2021. Everybody was 140%. 140, NRR. 150, 160, 130. Right. And to me, NRR is not a predictive thing of anything. It is a manifestation of the today. Oh, our business is good now. Our NRR is 140. You notice that those same companies at 140 now have an NRR of 105. Yep. Okay, but hold on a second. I thought that was a God-given right that my NRR was 140. Therefore, it tells you how great we are as a company. But I think we co-mingle these concepts of a great economic cycle. Or it's also a point in time. When you are a $150 million company, your NRRs are 140, 150, 160. You notice that the big companies like Microsoft, Salesforce, they don't tell you they are anymore because it's probably like 100, 105. Why does it become harder then as you get bigger? So you get bigger. So the NRR is really a reflection partly of the current economic cycle you're in. Things are great. Our NRR is 140. Our NRR is 140 because we're a tiny little company and we're adding these features and we're growing really quickly. So the NRR is great when you're small. But when you're big, you stop disclosing NRR. Yeah, you just say if it's above or below your benchmark, whatever, exactly. whatever, that, whatever means. that is. And that's inflation, price increase, maybe it's a little bit more seats, et cetera. So to me, that's just like not a critical element. I guess, I guess the potency of that metric has just been so diminished, in my opinion. It doesn't really tell you that much more than what you can already tell from bookings or revenue growth or whatever these things. And that gets to the ARR concept. 
ARR is you're doing my math for me. You're juicing your number because you take the quarterly revenue times four. I can't do that math myself. Yeah. You got 25 million in quarterly revenue. Now I'm ARR is 100. Therefore, the companies look a lot bigger. Right. And then the ARR definition, oh, I'm taking it from March 31st versus January 1st. So the March 31st number is bigger. I've got to m- multiply that by 365. There's a difference in how you calculate ARR, NRR, exiting ARR. There's lots of ways to skin the cat. And that, again, is basically a reflection of let's just inflate the number, make ourselves look bigger. Because you notice that in public software companies, they trade on revenue, gap right. revenue. But in private software, it's multiples of ARR. But somehow yeah. like that whole thing has to translate into gap revenue when you go public. But when you're private, okay, let's just take the best possible approximation and then let's juice that on top of with these big NRR numbers when you're a tiny little company. And so I need, I need to look through all of that and say, guys, come on, <laughs> this is nonsensical. I always say, if you want to trick your investors, tell them about your car contractual ARR. So you do the exit value of what's committed and hasn't even showed up yet. But then, like you're saying, if they're smart and do their due diligence, they're like, wait, why is the gap between revenue and ARR growing over time? This makes no sense. Yes, yes. It's all little clues that you can extract. Yes. Tony, so if that's not a component of durable revenue growth, how do you size it up then? Is it a reflection of TAM? Is that what's most important in your mind? We can get to TAM in a second. I think durability is a function of these other qualitative concepts to me. The dominance, the stickiness, the absolute necessity, and the amount of competition. And is there a lot of gravity, system of record, data gravity to what you're selling? And there are many examples of this. Obviously, I think, you know, Microsoft Office, like it's going nowhere, right? Bloomberg for us finance guys. That has tremendous durability. It is going nowhere. Everyone's using it. So there's these other elements, to me, help define durability. Because you can have some app, and let's say I have a two-year contract with a subscription app. You know, Let's say it's a note-taking application. Or I'll give you an example. I'm not going to name the companies, but all these collaboration work management tools. I've gone through four of them in the last six years. I started with one, went to another one, went to another one. It's subscription, it's SaaS, it's durable, right? No, that's not durability. Bloomberg, though, I've been doing this 25 years. I've had Bloomberg for 25 years. That's durability. That's not a metric or KPI. This is a qualitative assertion of what has this duration durability withstand the test of time. That is what I think is durable. Oracle database. No matter what, it's still there. That's how I would define it. Yeah. I joke that you have a better chance of replacing the office carpet than you do replacing that suite in a five-year period. You're absolutely right. Absolutely right. Tony, for the benefit of listeners, what does gravity mean? Oh, now now you're getting into physics. Okay. All right. But (laughs) not that gravity. Like data gravity. Yeah. Yeah. To me, you know, you hear this term now, especially in the world of AI, right? Data has gravity. I don't know what they're saying though. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's going to this concept that there are things that have a weight to them that, like you said, can't get pulled out, that it's so embedded. And it's also very entangled in with everything else in the organization, the integration and entanglement. That's a good word, entanglement. Yeah. Like a CRM or something. The roots of the tree have gotten 
everywhere. And to me, you know, we have all of this data that's sitting there. We have this system of record that's been so entangled in organization. In a way, that's some of the gravity I think people talk about. And then, you know, with AI, you have all these systems of records and pools of data that are just sitting there hard to get out. And then you bring AI on top of that. And to me, that's how I would connotate this notion of gravity. Cool. Thanks for making that clear for us. Are you cool if we jam on TAM for a little bit? Yeah, let's talk about TAM. Why is it important to investors and for all the founders out there who may be working on a pitch deck, how large is large enough? First of all, I'm going to shock you that I find this kind of like NRR. To me, I kind of dismiss it in many respects. Yeah. Because for the most part, they're not realistic. They lack credibility in these numbers. I hear these TAMs. We're a 30, we're talking a $30 million TAM. And then I'm like, okay, that's great. But like, where did that number come from? The single biggest company that exists already in your, what you define your category is like a $2 billion company. So where's the other 28, you know? Where's it hiding? <laughs> where, where are these numbers coming from? And then you got to unpack it. And then like, is it software? Is it software services other? They're just packing it in. They're packing it in. So this number looks gargantuan. But yet you look at every precedent company and nothing is over, I'm just making it up, the $130 billion town. We got mm-hmm. the biggest company in your space is two. Mm-hmm. So is it that fragmented? What's going on here? So the numbers don't add up. And then it's very simple. Often like companies will tell me, well, if we just took the Fortune 2000 and we multiplied by a million dollars per, and we, we take 20% of that, you know, it's like large numbers times large, no- small percentages, you get big numbers. And conceptually, you say, oh, this times that times this equals this. Here's the TAM. Again, that doesn't match up with reality. And then finally, another one is, I'm going to give you an example, like business intelligence. Oh, it's a $40 billion TAM. And all these companies coming into the business intelligence market. It could be a database market. It could be any of these. Markets. I'm just using that as an example. we got this $40, $50 billion TAM. And then I go through this math. I'm like, well, the biggest company I see is $2 billion, $3 billion. Where is this money? And then you say, the TAM is this big. And then you say, well, so how big are you? Well, we're $100 million, $200 million. And then I say, okay, so are you going to rip and replace the $40 billion TAM? Oh, no, no, no. Well, no, no. Uh, 90% of our business is net new. It's something else. We're not ripping and replacing this stuff. Okay, then wait, hold on. You're not ripping and replacing. So you're sitting, you're building an adjacency or building on top of this thing. So that's not your TAM. Your TAM is not the $40 billion thing that you're not replacing and ripping. You're trying to build something on top because, you know, a rip and replace is hard to do. Yeah. So what you've done, it's like you've taken the accreditation of this massive pool of spend that you're not really going after right oh, away. Wow. Yeah. You are adjacent to it, but you claim that's your tail. That's you not took your credit tail. for it, but you're not going after it. Exactly. So we're only going after really a billion dollar thing that can grow to be four or five billion. In the 10 years time, we will then replace the 30 or 40 billion dollar old thing. But like you notice that a lot of these companies, they don't rip and replace. Some do. Some absolutely do. A lot do not. But yet they take credit for it. So, so to me, this whole TAM idea, especially for things that are pre-existing, right. I, I just completely discount it. Now, something that's relatively brand net new, this is a harder, harder calculus. But again, you run into the same problem. Big numbers times small percentages often equal big numbers. 
there's a billion people in the world. If we can only get five, 10% of them, we'd have this $30 billion <laughs> TAM, and therefore yeah. we are, this is our TAM. And I'm like, okay, wow, really? It is a little trickier to calculate brand new markets. That said, in the last decade of software, how many brand net new markets have there been? And you go through the list, it's not that many. A lot of them are existing markets or it's somewhat extensions of a market. And then there's another whole thing about the TAM, right? It's often you think a TAM is a very narrow thing. And this goes to the concept of features versus companies. Say more about that. I'll use this as an example, observability. 10 years ago, observability, was there was no such thing as observability. It was SIM, logging, APM, infrastructure management, tracing, browser isolation, okay, yeah. whatever. There are five, six discrete categories. And then all these companies, all of these things were their individual swim lanes. And we're going to build these amazing companies in individual swim lanes. 10 years later, it's called one category, observability. So the TAM, what was the TAM? Well, well, we had all these individual TAMs, but this TAM has been like commingled and it's coalesced in a very different thing. And the competitive set is very different, radically different. In general, what I say is companies come in and tell me, I got this massive TAM. I immediately zone out. And then I say, let's deconstruct this. What are you really saying? And then once you deconstruct the truth, then you realize that's not the real TAM. That was a soundbite. Clip that, producer Natalie. That was good. Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. How do you size up, though, if a company has the right to own an expansion opportunity? Because I'm guessing that a lot of the companies you do invest in, they have one maybe control point or they're in one of these areas. How do you look and say, how do you make this bigger and expand over time? I love your point. Exactly. Who has the power? Who has the leverage? Who has control, right? Let's go back to this observability thing. Which of these six or seven categories has the most gravity, that has the most control? Maybe it was logging, maybe it was APM. I'm just going to use that as an example. And it probably wasn't browser isolation or SIM, for example. Okay. If you are now in this position of logging, let's say, or whatever, and that, for whatever reason, has the most gravity, or in a world like a database, like a SQL database, or then you, right. because you have this gravity. This they don't all have the same pull. So it depends where you start from. Because you had a stronger position in which to extend into. If you're like in this fringe thing, it's harder for you to extend into something else that is more difficult to extend into. These are judgments, right? These are obviously judgments. You're trying to make a guess of like, oh yeah, that system of record is a great foundation in which to extend. Or are you just a thin veneer, a wrapper, are you a subsidiary function and you're trying to extend into, that's that's harder. So these are, again, value judgments you're trying to ascertain as to who has this, what you said, control point in which to extend. Is it the right or is it that you've earned the right? You've sure. earned the position to extend versus just having the right to extend because your actual competitive position is not as strong as you might think. I love how you use thin wrapper and veneer to describe if you're really in a position to extend, because there are a lot of companies out there that dress themselves up as the best things in sliced bread. Yeah. Yeah. In the world of AI, it's even more of a conversation because are you a wrapper on an OM? Yeah. And then you notice that the bottom of the stack is where the gravity goes. It's like gravitational pull, The, the data, the gravity, the compute. Is at the bottom, the bottom of the stack, that, right? Yeah, that works. It goes there. That thing is harder to dislodge. 
But at the top of the stack, where you're floating in free space, where is this notion of the wrapper? So yeah, I mean, physics does hold. That's a cool line. Physics does hold. Tony, during the COVID years, we had touched upon how like a lot of companies had super high NRRs. We yeah. did see some super premium valuations, both in public and private markets. Can you think of any examples where the valuation just didn't make sense specifically because of TAM? Or did you throw out TAM at that point too? You weren't really looking at it. Let's go to the height of the insanity, 2021. I think interest rates are one or zero to 1% post-COVID. The heroin-injected capital, rates at zero, everyone's NRR was 150, SaaS could do no wrong, FOMO, right? And so if you're not if you're not investing in these companies, you're missing out on a 100% move in yeah. NASDAQ. So either you're in the game, you're not in the game. And obviously, there's degrees in which you could participate. You know, and unfortunately, if you are a participant, you will be caught in the crossfire of that. Again, I, I go back and I we were habituated for 10 years. What I call the golden age of tech is post-financial 2009 to 2019, or two, okay. let's call it 21, 12 sure. years. 12-year period was the golden age of tech where you had this just incredible rise of capital availability and rates. And what we've failed to recognize, I think, is that we were lax on what the intrinsic risk was. Because rates were low, risk-free rates were low, the beta or the risk or the discount rate, the hurdle rate that we ascribe, it was just, in my opinion, we all habituated to something that this was the new reality. And because we are habituated to this, we effectively put lower and lower discount, the hurdle rates of risk, a, a credit to a lot of companies. And so I'll give you a great example. I just give you an example. In 2021, if I ask you, CJ, what do you think an appropriate discount rate of Apple should be? Microsoft, Google, you'd probably say 10% today. Something right? between 8 and 12, yeah. 8 to 12. I mean, back then, when rates were zero, you'd probably say seven or eight. And I'd not, probably and go as low as five. <laughs> yeah. So back then, you're saying the like, discount rate was seven and eight, seven or eight. You should at least get, if you're going to own these kind of amazing companies that have bulletproof balance sheets, da, 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 da. And then what was happening is, okay, we have SaaS company X, FinTech company Y, e-commerce media Z. And we're losing money. We're going 50, 60, 70%. And our is 150. Mm -hmm. We're losing a crap ton of money. And then you say, what are you plugging in with your hurdle rate, your discount rate? And, oh, well, eight, nine, 10. You gave me the same one as um, Microsoft instead of like 20%. Yeah, and, and, and actually, you saw that. You saw these models and DCFs and valuations that basically were ascribing a similar hurdle rate for a loss making, high growth new company versus. Something, but then you fast forward to today and you ask the same very question. You know, the CJ family, I always say, forget all of that mathematics and say the CJ family fortune. Mm -hmm. You could put your entire family fortune for you, your wife, and your kids and your parents, and, and you could either stick it in Apple at, and Microsoft and Google and get 10%. That's the hurdle rate. Would you then put that in loss making software company? Why? At the same time, no, you would probably command a 20, 30, 40% IRR. And that kind of comparative analysis was not done in 2020, 2021. Everything was the same. But the discount rate, what you need to achieve that hurdle, 
to take the CJ family fortune and parking it into something that is safe, steady, and amazing, you know, you got to deliver a lot more, and I better develop a lot more return for this kind of risk. That was thrown out the window, and then we obviously we had to come to Jesus in 2022, and then partly into 2023. That was a good timeline, and I like how you you went through the sentiments of what people were feeling at the time because there are two things: it's the facts of what the numbers were, but it's also how did you feel? Did you want to be a player in the game? Did you want to be a participant, or did you want to sit on the sideline? And there is an implicit cost in that as well. There is, yeah, absolutely, there is. And so, if you are a participant, you are getting carried away partly with with the flood. It's just so reminiscent of 2020. Right? Yeah. It, it's just so many similar attributes to it. Like we had the pets.com loss making company with vaporware that went to zero. And then we had WorldCom that was a real businesses. Cisco at one point was a great large amount. So there was an infrastructure build because a new platform was being built. And then we had fly by night companies. Well, fast forward to 2021. We were going wild on cloud, replatforming the world to cloud and all this big spending, data center, da, da, da. And then we had all of these companies, vaporware with thin veneers and wrappers with loss making and cheap money fueled. Maybe in retrospect, theoretically worse quality companies, but the conceit was exactly the same. We had two kinds of companies, infrastructure, rebuild companies and fly-by-night loss making entities and same thing. And we had all the whole crypto thing, right? Which era did you think probably had the worst quality companies? There were far fewer. I mean, it's probably worse back then. Okay. In a way, but it's not like we had so many poor quality companies now. CJ, I don't know if you guys know the math here. and I mean, I'm sure your audience knows the math. How many unicorns are there in the world today? Aren't there over a thousand? Yeah, there's over a thousand. 13, 1400. Who knows? Globally. Half of those are... And like 400 US. of them, I think over 5 billion. Something yeah. like that. How many public unicorns are there in tech? Like 70? No, there's a thousand. Oh, I'm way off. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's globally, you know, including Asia, Europe. Okay. Right? Okay. Thousand and fourteen hundred. So there's actually more unicorns that are private than public. Okay. So on average, and in an average year, which is not in 22, not in 23, and definitely not in 21. You either had zero IPOs or you had 300 IPOs, right? The average is usually 30, 40, 50. Why is that? Is that the most that the market can consume and digest? Okay, yeah, exactly. It's like having Thanksgiving, turkey at Thanksgiving. You have turkey once or twice a year. Imagine if you had to have turkey every day. It's, that's like the IPO calendar. Historically, there's been 30, 40, 50 global IPOs in tech a year. And then we had this crazy aberration in 2021. And then we had a crazy aberration the last two years where there literally been none. But in average, it's 30, 40, 50, because you just can't, the market can't consume that. But we have 1,400, which is like 30 years of inventory. <laughs> so it's just mathematically not going to clear out. So we have a problem now. We have this gigantic backlog of unicorns. The public market can't absorb it. We can't eat turkey every day Yeah, we'll get for to the that. next 365 days. There has to be some kind of rationalization. Some number can make it, some and a lot cannot, and then they got to figure out a solution for those that cannot. And you don't think a lot of them will just continue to stay private longer now that we oh, have sure. the proliferation yeah. of the LMNOP rounds? I think Databricks ran out of letters. 
and I've said this before, you know, in my opinion, the top 10% are, are world-class and could make it, could go public. The bottom 10 or 20% probably don't exist. And then there's the stuff in the middle. And then the stuff in the middle, like you say, can you just stay private forever? Yeah, that's called being a zombie, okay? But you have LPs, you have mm. investors, you have employees. They need liquidity at some point. And so then you got to figure out what to do. Some portion of those will try to go public at, in my opinion, valuations that probably will not be palpable for a lot of the investors and employees. And then others will need to be acquired, merged, et cetera, because it's just the market cannot absorb all of those companies, and nor should they. They probably are not unique enough or good enough to withstand to go public. So I, I think there's going to be a rationalization of this pool. And the investment dollars that have gone in have, have come down significantly as well. This is all a forcing function that will play out in the next couple of years. Do you think the bar to go public has changed at all? Or do you think that we just forgot what it was and we're slipping under it for a while? Well, I think I've heard these complaints like, oh, in the good old days, we can go IPO at 50 million AR, 100 million AR revenue. Yeah, 100 million used to, in trailing 12-month yeah. revenue used to be the, yeah. the standard. But there's something called the world, right? The the S&P and NASDAQ have gone up four or five X in market cap in the same period. And now you have companies worth trillions of dollars. So what we thought was large is no longer large. What was large cap? Well, we have companies that are what I call ultra cap now, like trillion dollar, yeah, half two a trillion. trillion dollar entities. And then, you know, you cannot get the attention of investors when you're small. Before small cap was a billion, I think small cap now is five to 10 billion because, you know, the pools have gotten bigger, the market caps have become bigger, the companies have gotten bigger. Well, you know, the same rules apply. We just can't live with the same old rules. You will never get the attention, you know, if you don't have enough scale. And, that, and this goes to this, the same idea of, of gravity, of duration, of durability. You know, you're a hundred million dollar company, but Everybody else is in the billions. I never thought about it in terms of getting attention. That's such a neat lens to look at it through because if people aren't paying attention to you, that dog doesn't hunt. Yeah, I'll give you an example. Let's say you have a $3 billion company. A $3 yeah, billion company. which used to be very big. Yeah, and you know, if you even own 5% of the company, it's 150 million bucks. 10% mm -hmm. is 300. Okay, for many investors, like that company is just, it's just not, you can't even own it. Plus the trading volume, it would take you three months to acquire a position and, and then you can't sell the liquidity and doesn't move the needle on many. And then you have this whole passive complex, right? And so therefore you don't get the attention because is it worth the effort to invest in a $3 million company that can't even beat these mega cap, ultra cap companies? And so then what's the point? Why bother? Unless this has the scepter to become one of these breakout companies, which goes again to this notion of durability. I would look at it in a different way. Can you win and dominate? Not so much durability. If I hear that again from a software investor, software company, oh, we're very durable because we're SaaS. I'm just going to, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, my eyes glaze over when I hear that because that's not a defining characteristic anymore. Would you say competitive moats are a defining characteristic? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There's a power law. If you look at any of these categories, and I'm just, I'm looking at something in front of me, you know, if I look at all the different enterprise applications or security, 
or simulation and design or database, data management, whatever your category is, legal software, SMB software, there's a power law. And you'll notice that in pretty much every one of these categories, three companies typically dominate 60, 70, 80% of the market cap. Yeah. You got to dominate. Whatever category you're in, it could be the most obscure vertical niche category. That's fine. You just got to absolutely dominate. And you got to win. Number one gets all the attention, the credit, the valuation, everything. Number two, by the time you hit number three, it's like, what, why bother? And then that also feeds upon itself this notion of these moats. So if you can have an amazing moat and a relatively, like let's say you're in government ERP software. Okay. And you dominate government ERP. And you can make a great business. That's why like, you're still seeing vertical software companies come out. But these horizontal categories, very far and few between net new companies have got to dominate horizontal. Because again, this goes to the notion of dominance and moats. Like moat, dominance to me, same thing. That's why I love simulation, EDA companies. Like two companies dominate all of EDA, which is electronic design automations. Two companies dominate all the software that is to build every chip on earth, right? That's an amazing position to be in. Yeah. Okay, so you want these kind of modes. And, oh, and by the way, these kind of categories, like I just mentioned simulation and things like that, and semi-design software, no one's funding the new competitor. What's their moat though? So, so they dominate, but what's their moat that got them there? I think time complexity and let's just say you're not in the limelight. So what do I mean by that? Most software investors, until recently, never cared about chips. That's a commodity. All, all that stuff's a commodity. And now we've hit this golden age where like, everything in AI and software is blurred together. Compute and AI is now synonymous. And so venture and private equity or whomever, no one was funding chip companies. And surely, by God, no one was funding math and physics solvers and simulation chip design software companies because that, that's obscure and obtuse. Hey, I would much rather fund a, a marketing SaaS company. And so what happened was you had 500 marketing automation companies get funded and zero new chip design companies get funded. Mm -hmm. But they were like maybe five or six of them. And then over the last 20 years, they consolidated, consolidated, consolidated. Now, and there's only two left, two really big ones left. Oh, and by the way, because of all that time, and then it's so complicated. And because it's so complicated and no one was funding it, no one was paying any attention, you establish dominance. And then every company on earth uses those tools. That's called gravity. That's called their durability. Right. And then no one is going to swap you out for the next hot little tool because there are no new hot little tools and it's too late. Versus let's chase the hot thing. Let's fund the 500 marketing automation SaaS companies and let the blood run in the streets and let's see uh, ultimately who will survive and you know that was called salesforce and adobe you know and then everything else there was blood in the water blood in the streets and they could never scale they don't have the durability they don't have that moat sometimes you're operating in, in a world over here that no one's paying attention to and it's really hard really complicated and no one's funding your competitors and you ultimately develop a moat now lo and behold like wow that's a damn good moat that's happened in software in, in vertical like i just brought up the government erp Who's funding and attacking that thing? Yeah, it's a boring thing. I don't want to do that. But that's how one de develops these moats because no one's attacking you. No one's doing it. And 20 years later, time, 
you've established dominance and it's like ah, it's not worth it it's not worth it yeah. to change yeah you see it like in the auto industry you wake up one day and ccc and cdk own everything in the space right exactly yes do most of the companies you invest in tony have a competitive moat at the start or are you making a bet that they'll develop one over time it's a combination of both, right? So obviously there are those well-established moats and you know I'm all in on that. I love that. I love dominant companies. Mm-hmm. Just absolutely, if not number one, a duopoly. Okay, like it, you just gotta dominate where you are three, four, five times bigger than your second number. Those companies, whatever they could be, awesome. I'm all in. But then you're also like trying to bet on the new thing, right? So a new company, a new category, Mm-hmm. And then you got to dominate that new category. So those are the new ones that you're you're betting on. But then they come with, let's say, there's an evaluation period. You're evaluating. Can they make it? Can they not make it? And so you watch year after year. Some blitz all the way through. Some falter and hit the wall. And what you thought was category killer, moat, all these amazing dynamics, they falter, they hit the wall, and they can't get through the wall. And then at that point, you've got to make a decision. Like you stick with it or you move. Like increasingly, as I got older, life's too short. You got to move on. Life's too short. You got to move on because, you know, you're just not going to achieve that level of dominance. This is what I call the evaluation phase of these newer companies. I'm always looking for that. But if you're not achieving that breakout dominance, then, you know, life moves on. There's something else. There's something else coming. What's the timeline for that? Great question. It could vary between one to three years. You watch service now and you see how they've evolved or like Zscaler, how they've emerged as mm-hmm. this leader in SASE or other examples where what you thought was good and then they hit the wall and then they ultimately end up selling. It's probably no secret. Like, you know, you're, you're, you're watching Slack, right? Take off. And wow, this was the amazing chat product. And you're watching it, you're watching it, and then you're like, well, here along comes Microsoft Teams. And then you talk to big enterprise and like, well, no, no, we're just going to take Microsoft's tool. It's free. And this is not enterprise class, and you know, whatever. And, you know, invariably they, they sold to Salesforce. So this goes to, again, this, this, your first questions around durability, moats and stuff like that. You know, and there's time. You, you can scale to a certain point and then you hit the wall sometimes. Right. And then this is why it's so important to have second, third acts. You got to have multiple acts above and beyond your core business. Because like you, what you think it can get you to, and again, put the TAM math out of the window. You know how many companies get to a billion of revenue and then 5 billion of revenue and then 10 billion of revenue? It is an increasingly shrinking number. Like you have a, 100 goes to 50, 50 goes to 10, 10 goes to 5. And if you don't have second or third acts lined up, because that, to me, is a warning sign of which you're just living on the business of the today, not building for the second act, especially on an IPO situation. You better have started second act two, because, you know, and if you've got to be very realistic here, and you got to say, listen, we have a five-year runway here. So therefore, we better get act two going now, so that in year four or five, this starts to manifest and become something. And so if you're not if you're not thinking like that, you're just going off on the laurels of your initial IPO, like, hey, the TAM is X because it's so massive, because that's how I calculated it using my large number, small percentage theory. But in reality, if you're really, really intellectually honest and first principles approach, thinking like, listen, we have a five-year runway. 
we better have Act 2 starting to get lined up. We don't have to talk about it, but we better have something because eventually you'll hit the wall. Act 2 is different than second product, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I mean, unless your second product just really, really can double the company again, you know? Because, you know, as you get billed, it's not just, you got to add a lot of net new incremental dollars. And so maybe that second product, you could maybe have a second product that literally would double the company. But if it's just add-ons and extensions, that's not a second act. What happens is you start to saturate. When you invariably, you know, you, you'll find out, that you, oh, we have a $30 billion tab. And then pretty much companies hit the wall at 500 or a billion dollars and say, wow, wow, man, it's really hard. It's hard to grow because your tab, you've miscalculated the tab completely and you don't have a second act or whatever. Your product is not, is not, and you have not achieved this dominance and, you know, th these things. I think th there's a sense of reality. I mean, you got to have ambition, you got to dream and you got to be creative and all these things. But you also have to be rooted in, in what I call, you know, just principles. And are these principles, are they real? <laughs> so, yeah, that's what I think. Do you think that market leaders ultimately need to create a new category? They could buy. Invariably, they buy, right? Yeah. It's hard to really create something that new. I mean, look, Google bought YouTube. They bought Android. Meta bought Instagram. CrowdStrike has bought companies. Palo Alto has bought a lot of companies. They didn't invent cloud security. So yes, once in a while, you can create a second act. Apple has had multiple acts, right? Mac, iPod iPhone. These are like amazing new net new creations, but it's very rare to have second two, three act, you know, Microsoft Azure, you could call that a second act. I think that's rare. That's the rare case. Uh, I think a lot of times you could just buy it or tuck in like in, in security space. Palo Alto's, I think, just done a masterful job of creating a second act beyond firewall. What's the importance of having a strategic narrative you tell people as a company? I've admired the way that you deconstruct stories that people will tell you about their company, but I feel like you do appreciate that there is some merit in having a strategic narrative and being able to describe oh, that absolutely. second act. You have to, I think. Again, this goes to like, you got to get the attention of people. Do you matter? Does it matter? Does it not matter? Is it just a, a metric, an ARR and a growth rate? And the rule of 40 math that anyone can do, like this is third grade math, okay? What I just did, it's third grade math. ARR is four times quarterly revenue. And NRR is an abstraction of EV to revenue. It's just third grade math, okay? So if you got to go beyond that and say, okay, especially for a newer company, we have a right to exist. I think you use the right to yeah. expand. And, and we have a right to exist because we are in this new category. We will dominate. Trust me, we can do this. And it's worthy of your attention to pay attention to me because we have the potential to be something different and special. If you're just throwing numbers out there and then it's gotta be relevant, right? Oh, I'm just, I'm a feature masquerading as a company that will be ultimately subsumed, you know, in the inevitable consolidation. That's not really that interesting, okay? I am gonna be whatever, X, Y, Z yeah. feature said in the observability wars, Versus I'm going to win the observability wars. It's very different. And so you absolutely need to have that strategic narrative. Otherwise, you just become less relevant. You don't become relevant. So we've talked a lot about tech and software, but I do want to bring it back to the people who are running those companies. And so yeah. the first thing that I wanted to ask you is when you listen to CEOs and CFOs on public earnings calls, other than the actual numbers, what are you listening for? Ah, 
Yeah. Okay. So, you know, I always say every person, every company, you know, on a conference call is one hour, 60 minutes, right? And in, in the 60 minutes, besides the SEC quarterly gap accounting papers, the sheer numbers of it all, the rest of what you say is a choice. You choose what to say, how to say it. And the choices often come in what, you know, literally what you say or what you write. And you can send a message. You are intrinsically sending a message. So, so there's a godly look of a one-hour call, and I really hate this, like the 20 minutes of prepared remarks that you're just reading off of a, you could just put that in a three-page letter, <laughs> where, you, where you can also convey in written text what you met, and then what you say in Q&A and these things, what you say often belies what you're thinking. And so I often say whatever one chooses to say is a, is a message, you know, and, and there's a hundred, hundred sentences, but five or six of those sentences mean everything. The other 95 are just filler. And so I, I look for intent, causality, messages by what they say and often what they repeatedly say, because that kind of tells you what they're focused on. And so it's, it's very careful to look at what the words they are actually saying and that what I deem to have relevance and potency. And that's what I look for more than anything in a conference call. That is what the company is really trying to say. This is the focus of the CEO. The CFO has been distracted, but when it came to this topic, that's what, and, and, that, and that gets repeated. And so that's what I'm looking for. The rest, AI can just summarize the conference call, right? This is what happened. So I'm looking for those messages. All right, last question I got for you, and it's admittedly a selfish one. So I'm a tech CFO, and you've had to listen to a lot of CFOs at tech companies talk on earnings calls or when they pitch you. What do you think are the qualities that separate the good CFOs from the great CFOs? At the end of the day, what's the underlying, one of the underlying attributes is trust. I trust in the form of, okay, I feel this is a safe pair of hands. They're not gonna cook the books. Mm -hmm. They're very clear and concise. They can handle the costs and it's trust. Do you trust the person that has the wheel of the financial engine? So there's trust and there's command of the facts. Mm -hmm. Command and you could just tell when people know the numbers, know the facts and all the different intricacies. So that also helps inform trust, right? And then thirdly, I think you brought up this notion of strategic narrative and things. If the CFO can also articulate these numbers, the context of the strategic underpinnings of the business, what really moves the needle, what matters to the company. So it's the trust, it's the command of the detail, and then this strategic narrative, strategic understanding, this holistic combination. Oftentimes you'll have CFOs that can do one or two of those things. Yeah. But if you can do all three, then you got someone special. There you have it. The three pillars. <laughs> Tony, that was amazing. Thank you for being right. generous with your time. CJ, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Roll the credits, producer Natalie. Run the Numbers is part of the Turpentine Podcast Network. It is produced by Natalie Torrin and edited by Justin Golden. Album artwork by Some AI Thing. Yelling an intro by Fat Joe. If you made it this far, please give us five stars. I really need this.